0: If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir, it's heretic happy hour.
1: Oh yes, my friends, it is that time once more, and I am so, so glad. Oh my gosh, I have been looking forward to this episode for quite a while. And uh, it's the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. Welcome, my friends. My name is Keith Giles. I am the uh, author of a couple of books, most recently, Jesus Unbound, Liberating the Word of God from the Bible. And I am joined by my co-hosts, Matt and Jamal. Say hi, guys.
2: Hi, friends. This is Jamal. It's good to be back on the Heretic Happy Hour podcast with you guys. I'm also author of Free to Love and a soon-to-be next upcoming book and that's uh, going to be exciting.
3: Yeah, exciting. Uh, and I'm Matt DeStefano, author of like four books, two with choir and a bunch on the way. And I just want to start out by saying that we announced it last week, but we do have a Heretic Happy Hour store that you can find on her- heretichappyhour.com slash store. And we've got three new shirt designs. And we've got a little wager going, not, not any money or anything, but we've got three designs, Agape Against the Machine, which, Keith, you modeled beautifully on Facebook. Thank you, sir. And we've, a, and we've got the OG Mary Magdalene and the God Loves gaze, which is the shirt I got. And I'm a little disappointed because check the stats and Agape Against the Machine is in the lead in terms of sales.
1: Woohoo! yes.
3: And Mary Magdalene, I'm sorry, but... That shirt's slacking right now, Jamal. Well, I hate yeah, this. she's I hate a, to say
1: it. no. Can I just? She's about as popular as she was with the regular disciples. Oh,
2: snap! Yeah, you know, here's the thing, um, and I just want to—I don't want to go off on on a tangent on this, but I, can I just say yes, this? Yes, you do. <laughs> yeah, of course you do. Listen, the the, the episode we did—I believe it was episode 33. It could be wrong, but I think it's episode 33. When we we—it's called uh, "There's Something About Mary," in which we talked about the Mary Magdalene episode i mean that episode from what i understand was um <clears throat> i got a lot of feedback probably the most amount of feedback that i mean i think I, uh, i've ever gotten on a, on an episode so on any episode um so i know there's people out there that resonate with mary magdalene if mary magdalene's t-shirt doesn't win this this sure. quote unquote competition it's evidence of the conspiracy to suppress this woman's voice. And I'm just saying, we, oh. we have to. <laughs> oh,
1: that's a stretch. So, so like, somehow someone is d- deleting the orders. Uh, no, that I don't think that. I would just say that. They can't.
3: I would just say that it's,
2: it's just like people are reluctant. It's like people are reluctant to act on what they know to be true because it's. Well, like, you just
3: got oh. to rally the troops, Jamal. You got to
2: yeah. rally yeah, the yeah, troops. Listeners. That. I think,
1: look, honestly, look, here, this, this is the truth because I took a picture of myself wearing my shirt. Matt, you took a picture of yourself wearing your shirt. I saw no photographs of Jamal wearing his shirt. Well,
2: I mean, just be honest, I'm afraid.
1: I think it's marketing. It's all marketing. I'm just kind of. It's it's advertising.
2: (laughs) I'm afraid of being called a heretic. I don't want people to look at me like it's one of these conspiracies.
1: Oh, yeah, I can tell.
3: But speaking of marketing, we've got to market something really exciting. It's the first ever fifth live show we got coming up. We are going to be down at the Sidecar offices again in Costa Mesa, California on February 23rd. And we're going to be. Right in the middle of our sex series. Yeah. How exciting is that? Yeah, you
1: know what? Uh, we're getting the band back together. I love it. And and see, people are afraid when I moved up Boise, Idaho, they were like, that's it. That's no more live shows. And like, look, it's we're making it happen. So if you are down in Orange County, this is uh this is gonna be a huge event. Please do all you can to be there. Totally. It's gonna to be awesome. And like like Matt said, we're gonna be talking about sex. Come on. Well, yes. hey.
3: Plenty of blushing. <laughs>
2: Yes. And plus we'll never be doing, we'll never ever again in the history of the show ever do a fifth live show. You know, this, so this is, the that's th- right. This is the yeah, first and last time history. we will ever do a fifth right. live show. Yep.
1: Yeah. yep yeah. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. That's
2: right. Oh, and uh, I think it is time for me to announce that, um, that we have a hotline and yes, um, we do. We do. We do have a hotline and um, let's just, okay. The, the, I'll give the number out. So please everybody um, get your, your utensils out to write this down uh the number is 240-343-7379 um or 2403 heresy you know you guys can ask anything i mean anything you want to ask you can call that hotline ask any question make any comment you want um it is not guaranteed to make it on the air but i mean it could it could just depending on you know what we think about it, but we, I would encourage anybody. If you have any questions, any topics you want to see covered, any just any thought that has run through your mind as you're listening to the podcast, would love to hear from you guys. And uh, you can also text that number as well. And I believe,
0: do we have anything this week on the? Yeah, we go. Hey, Mr. Heretics, uh, this is Kosh. Yeah, you guys are just deconstructing or shedding light on things that I've had questions about for so long is honestly just blowing my mind. So yeah, I just really appreciate the the work you guys are doing and uh, the things you guys are talking about. Um, it's definitely helping out. I'm sure a lot of people like me who feel alone um, or have felt alone for a long time in our beliefs um, really makes us feel like we're part of the community again. Uh, I did have a question. I was listening to, uh, one of your guys' segments on salvation and heaven and hell. Um, I totally agree with you guys. For the longest time, I couldn't wrap my head around this fire and brimstone Dante's Inferno style hell that the Southern Baptist Church kept feeding me. Um, but I wanted to know what your guys' thoughts were on kind of C.S. Lewis's take on heaven and hell and, uh, the great divorce. If any of you have read that and, uh, yeah, it's just, it's vastly different from the, I think the typical American mindset on hell. Um, but it's still not universalist in, in any way. Um, so yeah, I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on that. Thanks, guys.
1: Yeah. Well, so I don't know. Have you guys read the book?
3: It's been so long. Yeah. I, I remember parts and bits and parts of it. Yeah. Have you? I
1: read it. Yeah. Um, yeah.
2: Jamal, have you read it? Um, C.S. Lewis, is he, who is that guy? Is he,
1: uh, he, You know, he wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And oh, is he, he a film director? <laughs> yeah. See this, guy. this
3: guy. Yeah, he directs. Yes. Yeah, sure.
1: Anyway. <laughs> well, I, I, here's what I remember about The Great Divorce, because um, it's funny that he mentioned being Southern Baptist. And so I, I was raised Southern Baptist, and I was licensed and ordained Southern Baptist. And at the time, I was still sort of in that theology framework when I read the book. And so it did kind of tweak me at the time. I remember reading it and thinking, man, this guy, C.S. Lewis, he's, you know, I don't think I thought he was a heretic, but I thought this book makes no sense. Because uh, the, what I remember about the book is that in his version of sort of the afterlife, people that are in hell are there kind of because they prefer it there. And then even if they sort right. of like take them to heaven, it's painful for them. And they actually quickly want to go back to hell because they're just it, that's kind of where they fit, but but he he underscores the fact that it's sort of, uh, at least in his view in the book, people can go back and forth uh, at, at their own desire, you know, at whatever they want. Um, so that that was the part of it that to me was sort of odd. I didn't know where he was coming from, what he was point he was trying to make, and I, or even what he was basing it on. Now now I read it and I think oh it's it's kind of creative and interesting, but at the time I think yeah. I didn't really just I didn't understand what he was trying to say. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Uh, and I know CS Lewis I wouldn't I wouldn't say he was a universalist but he was certainly influenced by McDonald George McDonald who was a universalist and um I know McDonald influenced him in in a lot of ways and I think yeah I I I think there's there's certain allegory you can pick up from it I mean we certainly can go from heaven to hell here in this life so I think there's definitely something to that I just I might not agree with his uh End belief or end view, but I don't know where he was at. So, yeah, it's definitely better than the fire and brimstone. Shit. Oh
1: yeah, I'll take that. That's true. Yeah, no,
2: <laughs> I, I agree. I, I like CS. I'm just kidding about CS. I, I, I like a lot of CS Lewis's. You know, just I mean, I, I I. The only thing I think I've ever read by CS Lewis was, and it really wasn't a book that he intended to write. It was a collection of uh, talks that he gave. It was called *Mere Christianity*, and it was uh, a bunch of talks he gave on the BBC during during World War II. It was a great, great book. I appreciate his thoughts on it. You know, the idea of heaven and hell, though I, I and I know the caller was coming from a Southern Baptist background and again, Southern Baptist, because um, I'm familiar with that. I went to Southern Baptist University and kind of was trained up in, in that school of thought in my Christian days. And I really, I um, understand the preoccupation with the afterlife. Um, but it really is, un, I mean, honestly, you should just forget about it like drop it because jesus never talked about the afterlife um very rarely did he talk about the afterlife most of the gist of his teaching was about heaven and hell as it pertains to a state of being and that primarily has to do with right now and he rarely talked about the age to come he touched on it kind of alluded to an age to come but really didn't go into a lot of detail with it so this idea that the gospel is about where you go when you die is a literal invention by Western Americans, um, going back 150 years or so. It's Excellent. pointless. And the the Roman Catholics invented that too. Yeah, we've had, we had Roman Catholics invented hell uh, in the fourth, fifth century. I mean, there was ideas of it, but it's really more Dante's Inferno and in Greek mythology. You can just drop it.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've already done a whole series on hell, so uh, mm-hmm. you yeah, know, you guys check that out.
3: Yeah. But don't we have don't we have something else a little bit different in this uh, version of the hotline? We have a Facebook group so you can you know, we don't we've never had a Facebook question on the Heretic Happy Hour, but we're going to do one this time because it's such a good question. It's from our friends over at the listening chair and they wrote this high church loving mainline Protestant is a little sad sacraments didn't come up in episode 38 on worship. What say ye, heretics? So what say ye? <laughs> what say? What say we? What's what say we?
1: Well, I mean, it was a good. I mean, I kind of wish you would have brought that up before we were pretty much wrapped up this series uh, on church. I guess I didn't think of it because I didn't grow up in a church that really emphasized the sacraments so much.
3: Yeah. Me
1: neither. Um. So maybe we can down the road we'll we can touch on things like baptism yeah. or I know yeah. we're going to be touching on marriage when we get into the sex series. Uh, sure.
3: Sure. Yeah, but we're going to have to kick this one down the road, but I'll um, I, i I'll, I'll play the Girardian card and say that I'm all for sacraments, and I think they could be a great form of worship because we're so ritualistic. I think we need that in our life, and those sacraments, I think, do sort of create this iconic thing where we can get in touch with the divine and all that good stuff. So I, I think they can be a, a fine form of worship.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, I think the history of Christianity, if you look at the church, Throughout the ages, sacraments have not helped anybody because, and again, I'm not saying that they can't, I'm not saying that they can't serve a good purpose, but the history of sacraments have never, in my opinion, has been a major, major distraction. So you look at baptism, um, obviously this idea of dunking, being dunked in water, maybe the Baptists love the idea of just being, you know that you're, you're dunked fully in water and this signifies they, they come at it from the standpoint of this is like, okay, you're commanded to do this as part of the great commission kind of thing. So it's a command. And so the, the thing, the water thing is demonstrating uh, you're, you're being obedient. You're demonstrating that you were once dead in your sin and now alive to Christ. And, and somehow this baptism ritual like declares that to people. And I get that. I understand that. Um, I think it can be meaningful if you see if you understand that you have died to, you know, the false self, the ego self, and now you're living, you know, from the true self, which is your oldest self, so to speak. That can be a little confusing, but you know, if you want to use baptism as the idea of like you're coming into your true self, the the part of you that is eternal in Christ, that's beautiful. I think can, it, baptism has traditionally not been seen like that. Baptism, the, the sacrament of baptism, is a Roman Catholic concept, which was invented by that organization to uh, visualize, you know, be washing away the, the stain of original sin and, you know, and that's kind of how you get entered, you enter into the kingdom of God, I, AKA the Catholic church through the sacrament, which, which is totally in my opinion, bogus, um, very false concept, very destructive concept that you have original sin and that somehow this act washes it away. It's, um, you know, And I think, you know, even people that we've had on our, our show, Father Richard Gore, who's a Roman Catholic priest, I think has disavowed even that understanding of sacrament, but he does not speak for the Catholic Church on that. And also, I think when it comes to communion, I mean, really early on in the in the history of the Church, the the wafer, the the idea of the Eucharist, the bread and the cup, came to be known as the literal. I think the, the Roman Catholic terminology is transubstantiation, which means that the body and blood, the 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 wafer in the cup, actually physically become the body and blood of Jesus. And so therefore eating the, the wafer and drinking the cup signifies taking in the body and blood of Jesus. And which of course Jesus said if you don't eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part of me. I understand that to be a metaphor of living by the Christ consciousness, the nature of Christ that he lived by himself and was just saying, look, if you live by the same life, you know, this is how we partake together of the same essence and and move together in this life in the same essence is it's a metaphor. It's actually an analogy. So the history of the church is probably within the first, maybe going into the second century, the church fathers understood that as an actual literal meal that you eat in order to actually kind of mystically live by some divine life, which to me is an absolute distraction from the reality and gets and goes against the grain of everything Jesus taught. So that's just my view on it. I'm not big on the sacraments. <laughs>
1: Well, there you go. Uh, and so let's uh, let's talk about the Patreon page. We have a, a Patreon page for our fans who cannot get enough of the Heritage Happy podcast. They, they're they willing to pay a little bit extra to help support what we do and to allow us to do even more. And uh, as a thank you, we give them bonus uh, interview clips. We give them bonus uh, podcast sessions where we talk about different topics. And that's only available to those who support us financially. So thank you so much. And we want to also make sure that we thank our newest patrons this time around: Nicholas A. Depu, or DePew, Depu, DePew, Aaron Burnett, and Guy Allen. Thank you guys so very much! Um, oh, and we also are getting ready to launch two new services uh, through the Patreon page for those who uh, support the, the the podcast. One of them is going to be if um, I think it's like a twenty dollar level. We're going to be doing a monthly like a Zoom webinar session and. Uh, so people, anybody on, you know who's, who's paying at least $20 uh, can be a part of that. And we're also thinking about doing something where uh, you can have one hour with all three of us and ask us any question you want. Put us on the hot seat and you get private one-on-one time with all three of us. Or if you wanted just two of us or one of us, it's up to you. Uh, we can negotiate that. But uh, watch for that coming soon. We're going to be launching that coming up.
3: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, which means that it's time for the Heretic of the Week. It's the
0: Heretic of the Week.
4: Hello, I'm Arianna Calajuri and I'm a
2: heretic. <laughs> Hi, Arianna. Arianna, it's so good to have you on the Heretic Happy Hour podcast.
4: I am super excited to be here.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We've been, I've heard so much about you from Ralph, <clears throat> our producer, and, uh, uh, the brains behind the heritage Hour. and um, actually, when I was walking the Camino in Spain last mm-hmm. year, um, I was uh, I was thinking about you, and uh, it, our, we didn't get a chance to connect. But I'm so happy that you're able to to come onto the podcast and uh, and for this interview. So welcome.
4: Yeah, welcome. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Happy yeah. to be here.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I would have
4: liked I would have liked to join you on that Camino.
2: <laughs> well, maybe next time. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I'm planning to go back. So, um, but, but anyway, what we do when, um, guests come on the show is we usually ask them, um, why do people consider them to be heretics? And so I'll ask you that question. We'll start off with that question with why would people consider you to be a heretic?
4: Because I don't walk the straight and narrow. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's could awesome. you, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Like, um, what does that mean? <laughs>
4: Well, i I walk my faith uh, to the beat of my heart, and I think thats uh, when um, Christendom, which I absolutely love and adore my faith and the the man and the entity of Jesus Christ and his divinity, but I don't adore what church, religion, history has done to it. And so I am passionate. About living my faith outside of the box or the walls of the church, and that's often considered heretical and it's not normal to what they think is normal and i I want to live naturally within the supernatural, and that's often uh quite confusing and scary for a lot of people
2: yeah i love I love what you said there um that you want to live naturally in the supernatural I think so many people consider the supernatural life to be extraordinary in the sense of meaning rare, like it's not normal. But I love mm-hmm. how you are phrasing that, that it's actually, it can be the normal way of living. Could you yes. maybe expound on that a little bit?
4: Well, we're, we're created naturally, and yet we also have this amazing presence of God inside of us, which is supernatural. Therefore, there's this connection of the natural and the supernatural daily when i choose to say hey god what are you saying to me today what are you doing inside of my body i i believe that that's so supernatural that god can communicate with me and that i can communicate with him yet i'm created
2: in this natural world
4: yeah, it's so that
2: it's, it's just amazing because we don't actually have to leave our body to right? commune with divinity <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like Pretty, pretty extraordinary that we have this humanity and divinity wrapped up in this one, in this, this thing we call our own being. I love that. that Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. But I wanted to ask you, Ralph, Ralph has told me, and we've heard this, that you have a very extraordinary title, like description for yourself, for your life and for your profession. Could you, could you share that with us?
4: (laughs) I would love to. So I've spent the majority of the last um, 35 years of my life living abroad and doing international work, and the church likes to call that a missionary, that title. And when we first went abroad, I just couldn't relate to this concept of missionary, but what I was doing is I was choosing to live in a second culture and to understand those people how they think, why historically they are the way they are, uh, culturally, religiously. And so I saw myself as a woman that was choosing to live cross-culturally. And we might say within the realms of the church, oh, for the gospel's sake. But really, I chose to live cross-culturally to know Christ and make Him known. And so I was trying to tell people within the culture of where I was, as well as my home culture, what it is I do. Because missionary has one connotation and uh, minister has another connotation, but cross cultural philanthropist—what is mm-hmm. that? I like
2: that. now, let me just
4: define can to be, you.
2: Like, can we say that a <laughs> cross cultural philanthropist? That's the title.
4: You got it. Fantastic. Yes. So in my research, it was like, okay, what what do I do? Well, I love people. Mm-hmm. I love the human soul. I love Christ. I love connecting people with that divinity. And I love going cross-culturally in order to honor those cultures, learn their language, learn their heartbeat. So when I discovered this concept of what is a philanthropist, we usually think it's somebody from Hollywood that has a lot of money and they help people that are of the utter poor. Well, actually, if you come right down to what the word is, philanthropist, philo which is mm-hmm. brotherly love in the yeah. greek language and anthropy which means human mm-hmm. so i choose to cross cultures and love humans wow. i like ah. that i like
1: that so good <laughs> no. that might be the greatest title and i've so- ever heard yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
4: I mean, what the best thing is when I am uh, speaking and sharing, most people are they're wanting to look it up, and I said it is not on Wikipedia, it is not in the dictionary the way that I define it. But God, He just downloaded it to me, and I love that it causes people to like stop and go. Mm-hmm. What is that?
1: What yeah. is that? I think there's a key uh, difference between w- missions work um, as we typically think of it and what you're talking about, and and you and you're right, it's the key thing you you. Put your finger on, which is um, I know a lot of stories of missionaries, even if you read uh, biographies or just stories about uh, famous missionaries unfortunately what you what you typically see or you notice or I've noticed is that um, a lot of times traditional missionaries come with a message that they feel like everybody in the culture they're going to needs to basically shut up sit down and listen to me and they don't spend a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is I think it's kind of across the board, and this has been the the cause of a lot of the problems with missions in the past and and a lot of failed missions work or or other things how the gospel has gotten twisted in certain cultures because those missionaries didn't come as you're as you're saying you do, they haven't come with a posture of first saying, I want to I have something to learn. I need to listen to these people. I need Mm -hmm. to learn about who they are, I need to love them, I need to learn learn their culture, their language. Their, their own theology, because they certainly have their own spirituality and their own ideas of God. And I'm going to first learn that mm-hmm. first, and then I'll be in a position, once I've spent a lot of time listening and learning from them, now I might be in a position of, and as well, maybe built up some trust uh, with these people that I could begin sharing my testimony of my experience of, of God. Uh, I was remembering, have you ever read the Poisonwood Bible? that, that yeah and that's a great example yes. right where this the guy shows up and he you know does a half-assed job of learning the language of the culture that he's supposed to be ministering to and so he keeps saying in their language mm-hmm. Jesus uh what he's saying is he thinks he's saying he thinks he's saying Jesus is the beloved but what he's actually saying because he's mangling the language because he's not taking the time to really learn the language he what he's telling them over and over again is Jesus is poison wood um and even when they, even when the natives tell him you're saying it wrong, you're not communicating it properly. He stubbornly re- just keeps on saying the wrong thing. Um, and if you ever watch the movie Silence, there's a scene, the scene in the movie Silence, which again is based on his history, right? Yes. Where early missionaries showed up and said that God, they talked about Jesus as the Son of God, but unfortunately they used the word "son" like for the burning light in the sky. <laughs> So they were actually teaching the Japanese people to worship the sun, not the son of God. Mm-hmm. And so again, just because they took no time to really learn the culture. And so I love what you're saying mm-hmm. because I think that is really the only way to ever have a dialogue is you have to spend time first listening. Um, can, so can you give us some examples of how you do that and then and, and the difference that it's made in, in your work, your missionary work? Mm.
4: Well, I'll go to um, the first country, Greece. We were there for uh, 10 years in Thessaloniki in the late 80s, uh, early 90s. And we chose to just live amongst them and learn their language. And the Orthodox culture is 98% uh, within that country. So we chose to learn about the Orthodox Church. And they believe in praying to icons. So I chose to get an icon of Christ, and I learned that in the woman's kitchen in Greece, for example, she has her icons with a candle facing east towards Jerusalem. Well, I thought that was pretty cool, but as an evangelical, it. it it caused a lot of questions when they would come to my home, which I loved. But I would put that in my the corner of my kitchen. And so these Greek women would come in and they would say, oh, Ariana, hice elenida? Oh, didn't me, y mi elenida me And what I said to them, no, I am not a Greek. They asked me, are you a Greek woman? Are you a Greek believer? Are you an Orthodox? And I said, no, but inside mm. my heart, I am. That opened up so many doors of relationship, of respect and honor and kindness, Mm -hmm. you wouldn't believe. And then when I learned to go to the church and light the candles, which has such a beautiful significance that we've lost in evangelicalism, that beautiful time that you light a candle and you say a prayer for somebody, it is your example in the natural Mm -hmm. to reach the supernatural. And so um, I have continually had many doors open up to me in the country of Greece in that
2: way. That's one example. Oh, that's beautiful. Beautiful. I, that's very different. Uh, your, your perspective, your outlook on uh, sharing the good news or being or, or modeling or you know, manifesting in your, in your own being, the good news is very different than mm-hmm. uh, obviously the that, that we typically hear of in the evangelical church or world, and um, I'm just curious as to what that process was like for you. Like, did you grow up in an evangelical uh, religious background how How did you come into your your frame of thinking now? Like, what was your process like?
4: I love that question. <laughs> I was not raised in a Christian home at all. Although at eight years of age, I noticed this building that we would pass all the time. And one Sunday morning, I went to find out what it was and sat there and had my first encounter with the Holy Spirit, this the presence of who is God? What is this? And then throughout my childhood until I was a teenager, I was not exposed to any Christendom at all. And was still hungry for the spiritual. I was always hungry for more of what was filled with love. Like I'm a, I know me. I'm a very loving, heartfelt woman. Like I just, my heart beats mm. outside of my chest. <laughs> and that was my connection of, well, what is love? Well, love is God. Well, who is God? And so my first encounter with Him um, after. I was eight years old, was in the Jesus movement, and so that's when I found um, my faith and understanding what it meant to have a conversation with God, what it meant to read His love letter to us, which is the Scriptures, and what it meant to move in the freedom of the Spirit. So my background is first and foremost the Jesus movement of studying Scripture and moving in the Spirit and falling in love with the God of the universe in a very organic natural way
1: can i ask you can i ask you something ariana because this is uh, yes um because i'm having a very similar conversation at this very moment with some of um the people on my own blog and things and uh, and it comes up a lot though in in conversations with people so like i love what you just said you went into this church as a young person and you just had your first encounter with the holy spirit Um, what do you say to people Or What would your advice be to people who say, look, I've been a Christian my whole life, but I have never heard the voice of Jesus. I have never had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. The only thing I know, the only way God ever speaks to me is when I sit down and read a chapter or a verse from the Bible. Um, How would you respond to them? I would ask them
4: if they understand or are familiar with meditation. Yep. Because I believe that when we are still and quiet, we give opportunity for God to speak. We still our mind, we mm-hmm. still our heart, we still our souls, and we can then ask and wait,
2: yeah. and he mm-hmm. promises exactly right. to answer. Yeah, Erin, yeah, I love that answer. I love, um, you know, obviously one of, one of my favorite verses from the bible is psalm forty six ten um when it says be still and know mm. that i'm god and so i always tell people like if you really want to know the divine mm. y- there's only really one way and that's mm. through stillness yeah because mm-hmm. you'll, you know like it's in the stillness that you get in touch i believe with your own heart which is really the only place you're going to find god anyway and so it's that place and then so the, the it's like the the voice is always there it's just that we're so in our head and we're so mm-hmm. hearing the all the thoughts, all the all the ramblings, all the fears, all the things, and that we're so focused on that that we can't actually hear um, mm. our own heart, which is really always in communion with the divine, because that's where God is. Right. And so I think if people can just get still, it's mm-hmm. not a question of like and people then wrestle, was that God's voice? Was that my oh, yeah. voice? And oh, yeah. it's like it doesn't even matter because you know, if you're trying to parse the voice, you're not listening. <laughs> so right. you just listen and whatever and he usually does sound mm. like our own voice, but that's exactly. the point. Um, I love, there's a quote that Richard Rohr <clears throat> recently came out with and he said, God, yeah, mm. me too. Uh, he said, God comes love to us him. disguised as our own life. And I, I love There's That's really a really profound statement. Mm. and I, I love that. And I really, really hear yes. that in what you're saying.
1: Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Yeah. I think also that, you know, that there's this question of hearing God's voice or knowing the Holy Spirit, and there, and many people are questioning that. Um, and then as, and, and I think that when we just make it simple and we get past all the rhetoric and the chaos of how are, how am I supposed to hear, this is the way you hear, 10 steps to hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, we want, we want, we want the, uh, give me the formula.
4: What do I do? Step exactly. one. Yeah. Exactly. And when we look at the life of the, of the divine, when we look at the life of Christ, he was so simple. He just said, take time take time i take time to go away to my father yeah exactly i take time and so i know that in our western world prayer is usually us speaking but in the eastern world prayer is a lot of listening
1: yes oh gosh yes that is and you know what that is i think that's the that's a very key thing too like what we're everything we're talking about here right it's um Mm -hmm. it's that that well, even what we just talked about about missions, right? We we don't go, we don't mm-hmm. do missionary work by listening. We don't even mm-hmm. we don't even go to God. Come on, we don't even go to the Creator mm-hmm. of the universe in a posture of listening. We want to tell mm-hmm. God a bunch of stuff and then say, "Okay, I'm done," and walk away. Like, what are we doing? Mm-hmm. We're we're in this always in this mm-hmm. mode of I've got something to say. Listen to me instead of in a, in humility saying I don't really know anything, but I sure want to learn. I want to be in a posture of listening and learning and growing. Uh, and and acknowledging my own need to be transformed and grow and learn, uh, whether that's in God's presence or in the presence of another human being. Mm -hmm.
4: You know, we've spent um, uh, some time, I'm just thinking of another example for you. Um, We spent some time the last uh, 15 years in Spain. We were 10 years in Greece, 10 years in Germany, and last 15 years in Spain. And we started a small nonprofit um, using arts as our medium to connect the heart to their creator. And here we are in this little small town and you walk everywhere. And every summer I invite people to come live with me in community and to discover their own spiritual journey of who they are through spiritual formation, meditation, yoga, arts, Creativity and relational connection. We also right. eat a lot of yummy food.
1: <laughs> Good, <laughs>
4: <laughs> but but there is a small uh, bar, a small mojito bar in the old town. And if you know how Spanish towns are set up, you always walk up to the top, and that's where uh, the historic parts are. And so they opened uh, an art mojito bar eight years ago, and we built relationship with them, and they have a um, a story above the the actual bar where they open it up and you can you know drink and play games and, and eat as well. And I asked them, could we do some workshops in there? We'd just like to do some creative workshops and just connect to the people here in the old town. And they were like, absolutely, Ariana. And um, I said, you know, that some of the people that I bring over have a really strong faith, Christian faith background. Are you okay with that? And they said, absolutely, we are okay with whatever you wanna do in our mojito bar. We would just like to ha- open it up to you guys to order and, you know, eat from and drink from what we have to offer. And it was like, yes. So we have done that for the last eight summers, building relationship with these people who she says to me, every year, I don't know where you get all these amazing people that come to visit us. She goes, I'm not really interested in the Christian God. She goes, but I really love who you are and, and the people you bring to us. And so, so I like I love that. Like, that's hands off. That's like saying, I cannot be the Holy Spirit to bring anybody to Christ or right. salvation. I just want to yes. love people. I just want to love them through their, the way they are. So one year we had a group of young people that had um, signed an agreement with their sending organization that they would not drink alcohol, but we are every Wednesday doing our um, workshops in the mojito bar. So this is divine and lovely at the same time. So we told this to the owners and the owner Mm. says, you know what, we're going to create a drink for your people. (laughs) So they have, they have what's called no hitos. Uh, It's got no alcohol, but it's got everything else in there. And so look at that. Look at that. That's crossing cultures in in a philanthropy way of saying, we respect each other because of what we share. And God is the God of that love and what we share. But let Holy Spirit be Holy Spirit inside that. And there are so many stories, but I just thought of that one of how they met us and we met them. And there's this unity. And I think God is a part of that with or without his name being spoken. It is felt and known and received.
1: Yeah. You know,
2: one of the things I think <clears throat> that made Jesus so unique is that I think he knew his identity. And so when he, when he, and he yeah. carried, obviously understood that he was a man, he was manifesting and carrying the divine presence everywhere he went. And I think, um, when yeah. you just know that and you kind of go into a situation that you just, uh, there's just a, it, it really puts you at rest. And I, and, um, I have a friend that he always says that the deepest breather is the most powerful person in the room. So, and I think, and I, there's something mm-hmm. about that. Obviously, when you think about meditation, it really connects you with your breath, with your essence. But mm-hmm. you're you're at a place where you're operating from your your essence of who you are. And I, I love, I used to, I've done some traveling myself and I remember I would be, you know, in culture cross, uh, cross-cultural settings, whether it's the Middle East or, you know, in China, India, any of those places. <clears throat> and at the time, I was um, probably more in the box of evangelical Christianity than I am now, but I remember being frustrated that I could not communicate uh, to these people about Jesus. Cause that was my aim. And I rem- I'll never forget it. I just remember just having a, a, a revelation of like, you don't even need to like, hang on a minute. Like you are like, you were literally everything that Jesus is to these, to, to the people that he was around. You are to the people you're around. There's no, Like you are literally the hands and feet of the divine in this place right now. So just know that and be here and realize that they have come in contact with Christ because you're there. Um, And I just think that's a game changer um, when it comes to that allows you to be in the culture. um, Just knowing who you are and what you're bringing to the table by default. I love that.
1: Yeah. I think if you're, I think if your goal is only to love people, whether that's in your, on the street you live on, people you work with, uh, just people you meet as you go through your day, or people you, you know, you're um, in relationship with in sort of a uh, missionary, quote unquote missionary type experience. If your only goal is to love people, um, then I think it's not, you know, it, it, the pressure's off. You just have to really relax and learn how to listen to people, how to serve them. How to see them and accept them for who they are and just love them. And that I think is, if that's your goal, um, that to me is much, much closer to what I think Jesus has in mind than what we've been doing, uh, as a, as, as Christendom, which is to come and sort of indoctrinate people and get them to think like us and act like us and, and basically, you know, adopt our culture. Uh, and also basically it's more about proving how wrong they are and how right we are. Those are those that that's to me when missions work becomes destructive. And uh, if that's the kind of missions work someone's doing, I'd rather they just stay home.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, Ariana, I know that you um, have a lot of stories. You have you've been in Spain for a long time and you have a lot of groups that come over, probably Christian college students. I would imagine come and do mission. they, They think they're coming into a traditional missions trip and I'm sure they get a taste of something quite different which uh i love i just love the the prospect of that um but i i hear yes. that you have a, a a gay wedding story and i would love to hear about that if possible
4: yes absolutely i'm just trying to figure out which one <laughs> the best one just share the best one <laughs> okie dokie well so um and this was a story about my two dear friends who live in the little town in Altea Spain where I live um in the summers and these two men uh own one of the restaurants there and they had been they were going to celebrate their fourth year anniversary and uh I was there with Edge Project with uh, my Christian University students and a couple families who came that summer and they asked us, would you please come and perform for us? One, uh, one of the men said, I want to surprise my husband with you guys because he just loves you and he, he can't get over how much God uh, oozes out of you guys. Would you please come and surprise him and perform? So of course, go back to, you know, the staff and the students and all the edgies and tell them this incredible invitation that we have to be a part. Of honoring their love. And boy, did we get all different types of division and opinion and what we should and shouldn't do. And wait, this is a Christian mission and we've got students here and we're representing Christ and we cannot even affirm that kind of marriage. And I just stopped. I don't know what happened, but I just stopped the conversation. And I said, wait a minute. We have no right to ever tell anybody who they can love. Mm -hmm. and who and how. And if that is their choice, it is our honor and privilege to promote love in their life, which is what I know Jesus says to me. You will love. You shall. You want to. You can love others as I've loved Mm -hmm. you. And he loved without any condition. And therefore, We went. It was really beautiful. Some did not want to participate and absolutely release them. There was no pressure that they had to join us. But when we came, and it was a three-story restaurant, and we arrived on the bottom floor, and we started singing and dancing and doing spoken word, and the one husband who was surprised began to Mm -hmm. weep and his family was there who lives in the town aunts uncles grandmas grandmas they were like they were like gatekeepers they were like a, a generation after generation from this town and they watched these american Christians come in and just love and support and bring creativity and honor to God and the love of these two men. And they and some of them understood English and some didn't. We did some in Spanish, some in English. And at the very end, Grego comes up to me and he's weeping and he just puts his arm around me. He said, Ariana, I have been in the entertainment business for years. I have never seen so much love through creative expression that what I received night from you thank you for loving oh, us
1: wow. that's
4: great. a year later every year we go back and every year they're waiting and they say we wait for the presence of god to come knowing that you're returning that's next true. summer thank you and there's one little bit more the other one the man who invited us to come um, and surprise his husband. He comes from a Scottish background, and he'd been raised—I didn't know this until three years later—in a cultish situation where his grandma, you know, said, you know, uh, had told him many things that um, caused him to believe that Jesus could never love him. And he told me last summer. He said, having you be in my life for the last four years and just loving us, he goes, I now believe that God can love me and forgive me for anything and be a part of the divineness of my life. Praise
2: God. So good. That's profound.
1: Wow. Wow. So I, I love, man, everything you've been sharing, Ariana is so great. I, I think, you know, we wanted to talk to you specifically about missions, but I love that we ended up uh, (laughs) talking more about what it means to love people where they're at and because honestly that's really what it is I, I think that's and honestly isn't that what we're only that's what we're called to do jesus just called us to love people we're not called to change mm. anyone's mind or we, our yeah. job isn't to transform anybody because we, we can most of us can't even you know uh take care of ourselves mm. much less somebody else and uh, but just simply yeah. being learning to be loved and learning to love others mm. uh, is such a powerful thing so yeah thank you so much for sharing that's that's beautiful You're welcome. Well, you know, in
4: traditional missions, they are looking at numbers, how Mm -hmm. many people are saved and how many people are not. And that's part of where we've walked the line of maybe heresy in their mind. It it, The numbers is not Mm -hmm. what matters to us. It's how many people are we able to just Mm -hmm. have a relationship with. And we know scripture does say that no man can come to him Mm -hmm. except by the spirit. So I want to get out of the way and let the spirit be the spirit of the divine and I just want to be somebody that walks in the natural mm-hmm. and the supernatural with the God that I love. Yeah. Oh,
3: well,
2: thank you so much, Ariana, for just just the life that you're living, and um, for coming on the the Heritage Happy Hour. We really appreciate it. And what are what are just as we wrap up what are what are ways that people can can connect with you um, with your work? Is there what are you what are you currently working on? What, what are some ways that people can, can connect with you?
4: Um, well, I run the small nonprofit Edge Project in Spain every summer. I um, invite people to come over for a four-week intensive. Uh, stateside, I teach and mentor. I'm a spiritual director. I teach mm-hmm. uh, also family mm-hmm. yoga <laughs> of all ages. And um, did you want me to go ahead and say an e- a, a website? Sure. Oh, yeah, if you have one, please, sure. Okay, There. Uh, so www LivingEdge.org would be the
2: Edge Project. Awesome,
1: awesome,
2: yeah,
4: that'd be the best way to to
2: reach me. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Ariana. Appreciate it.
4: You're welcome. Thank you for the honor and the privilege.
1: Absolutely. Wow, uh, Ariana, that was awesome. So so exciting to have her on the podcast. That was mm-hmm. great.
3: Absolutely. yes, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. That was so.
1: Yeah, we well, let's move into our our main topic here. Um,
3: missions and evangelism, Yes, missions
1: and evangelism. So, uh, yeah, we kind of saved this one for last. I'm not sure why, but, um,
3: I think it just worked out that way.
1: It just worked out that way. Um, well, I mean, I, I have some thoughts on this thing and we're going to get into this and I'll be honest. Some of the things that I I'm going to share, I actually, uh, I have a really good friend. His name is Skeeter Wilson. He's actually in the Facebook group. Uh, he's a huge fan of the podcast and he actually is the guy that hosted the uh, the conference that I did earlier this year up around the Seattle area, um, what was about the Bi- Jesus, the Bible, and the Holy Spirit and great guy. And he's actually working on a book about missions. Uh, he himself was the son of a missionary in, uh, Africa, and he has a very unique perspective that I really appreciate. So I actually, when I getting ready for this, I was like, Hey, Skeeter, you know, give me, uh, give me some bullet points about what what you think about missions and first of all, none of it's positive. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, I mean, you know, the, the, the main idea of missions and evangelism, obviously it comes from, we get the idea from scripture, from Jesus, you know, the great commission, Jesus telling the disciples, uh, go into all the world and preach the good news of the kingdom to all creatures, uh, teaching them to obey everything I commanded you, um, and all that. But the thing about the great commission that I think we miss is that it's all about discipleship. Like the the, the the key ingredient there is when Jesus says, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. In other words, Jesus established a pattern, a way of life, an orthopraxy, we, we talk about this quite a bit on the podcast. And so Jesus wanted them to uh, continue to model and to help others walk in a certain way, live in a certain way and practice a certain uh, orthopraxy of, of um, you know, loving others, considering others better than yourself, serving people, um, and those kind of loving loving one another as He loved us, and those kind of things. So, uh, unfortunately, we have twisted that and made it something about making converts. Um, and uh,
3: yeah, because yeah, because we made Christianity not about what we do and how we disciple, but about what we believe, and so that we don't go to hell or some shit. Yeah, and that goes yeah. back to our original
2: original caller on the hotline. He was. You know, question about the afterlife, but that to me is the, one of the, one of the major reasons why we have gotten away from understanding what, what did Jesus mean when he talked about making disciples? Like we've completely gutted that of any meaning because we're so focused on the afterlife, which there is none. Now again, I've said that before, like, this is not the focus of Jesus at all. Like literally not the focus. So, you know, when we, when we change what the focus of the teaching of Jesus is about, then then we literally lose the essence of what he actually modeled which he didn't model it had nothing to do with the afterlife it was literally about the life we experience here and now
1: right yeah yeah so i
3: mean i think there's not there's nothing wrong with like there's nothing wrong with going out of the country and and helping people and doing all those things uh, you know i've never had a problem with people who want to go and help but it just always seems like there's this like ulterior motive like like it's important to you know, build a hospital or something, but really we just got to make sure they don't go to hell. And so it gets so ridiculous that we're like bringing Bibles to people rather than food. And it's like, well, what is a starving person going to do with a Bible? Right. I mean, that doesn't make sense. Well,
1: you know, can I, can I talk about what you what you just said, <clears throat> because this is something that I, I hadn't thought about it this way. Uh, but my friend Skeeter uh, made some really excellent points along this line about, for example, when, when your youth group takes a missions trip down to Mexico and they build a house in two days for a poor family, right? That seems beautiful. That seems like a beautiful, uh-huh. awesome Jesus thing to do, right? Or when, sure. when mission organizations build a hospital or um, build a school uh, or things like that. See, it seems like a great thing. However, what, we, what happens when we do those kinds of things is we actually create an economic dependency in those nations that, that actually keeps them in poverty. Um, so, for example, if, mm. if I was a contractor who built who, or carpenter in Mexico, how can I compete with, you know, uh, armies of free labor, hundreds of high school students coming in uh, from America and building houses for free in two days? Who's going to pay me to build right. their house, right? Um, another example is All like, right. uh, and Skeeter brought this up. You guys remember a few, like about almost 10 years ago, probably American Idol did this big fundraiser and they raised millions of dollars to buy mosquito nets for. Or people who were suffering from malaria in Africa, right? So what he brought up was, and I, I didn't even know this, but um, was that one of the few local businesses that had built up in Africa was a company uh, started in, and run by Africans that were that were making and, and, and uh, creating these these mosquito nets, right? That one American Idol promotion put them out of business. And they all lost their jobs. And now today, nobody in Africa will start a business making their own mosquito nets because we are, you know what I mean? We're giving them away for free. So this is the same thing that happens with hospitals, right? You can't be a, you can't be a surgeon or, a, or a, a, a doctor professionally in Africa if there's a whole bunch of Western doctors coming over there for free and giving free medical care. So that means you don't ever have mm. you can't go to the doctor down the street you can't go to the hospitals because unless it's something that western you know uh, corporations or churches or whatever or missionaries have built there isn't one so it ends up actually keeping their their economies uh depressed so that they can never actually build their mm. own infrastructures um, so that's actually mm. a problem
3: yeah and that's the shit you don't even think about yeah right? i didn't think of it
1: until you brought it up i mean i the other thing i think is um if you guys ever watch, there's two movies I think that are excellent that illustrate the other danger of uh, um, missions work, and like one is the Mission, and one is that movie Silence that just came out a couple years ago. Uh, Martin Scorsese directed. I haven't seen. Um, oh my
3: Have you Jamal?
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I saw Silence mm-hmm. for sure. It was good.
1: And see, both of those. Here's the thing about Silence. Um, in in the movie Silence, it it's what happens when the nation that you are sending missionaries to figure out that this is actually a power grab. This is a way for other nations through the church to create a dependency upon your culture and your, uh, your resources. And, and then when they did, when they decide to cut it off, it's like, no, 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 we don't want it. we're not going to have this anymore. So, you know, the, the Catholic priests take it as persecution. Uh, oh, and we want to suffer for our faith. But in reality, it was just the Japanese saying, "We don't want you guys coming in here and putting your hooks into our people and turning their hearts towards, you know, Western ideas, because this is a way for Spain or Portugal or 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 England or whatever nation is funding it uh, to to begin to get a foothold in their nation and start creating these kinds of dependencies, like we were talking about."
3: Yeah, well, that's. I mean, yeah, I mean, the, and correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of. Uh, the colonial pro- the problems that arose from colonialism was because we're all doing this like amazing mission work and you know, we're going out to preach to the lost and uh, you know, some good things can happen from that. But a lot of um, I maybe even unforeseen consequences happen when, um when this sort of thing happens, it just turns into, it's like a power over oh, yeah. someone you think you're doing something for them, but you're or with them, but you're doing it, For them, and or that's the good part, that's the thing you're telling yourself. But really, it's 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 really a power grab, like you said.
1: Yeah, typically,
2: sorry, Jamal, go ahead. Well, I guess the question that keeps coming to mind is okay, so you know, we know missions or you know, um, that kind of thing is not, you know, we know that obviously it's not supposed to be broadcasting our culture or making converts in the sense of like in the evangelical. You know, way of looking at things, and we want people to pray a prayer so they don't go to hell when they die. We obviously understand that that to be, you know, ridiculous. Um, At least, at least now, you know, we're at this place where in our our journey personally, that we're going. Okay, that's not. We understand that that's not what it's about. But what did Jesus mean when he said, "Go therefore into all the nations and make disciples"? Like, so, what do you feel like the heart of that man said that was like? What did he want to see accomplished?
1: Well, I think there's two answers to that. Um, for me, anyway, I think on, I think on the most immediate level, um, I believe that Jesus, as a prophet, um, knew that if the Jewish people continued in the direction they were going, resisting violently resisting the Roman occupation, the Roman you know, them being under the uh, under the control of Rome, that they were going to get wiped out. And he was wanting them to repent of that, turn the other cheek, you know, go the extra mile, love, love their enemy rather than hate them and try to overthrow them, not to live by the sword because if they continued living by the sword, they were going to die by the sword. So I, I personally believe that Jesus knew that this was an inevitability. It was going to happen. And by sending the disciples out to preach the message that he preached, which was again the Sermon on the Mount all about. Loving, giving, forgiving, serving, again, living this different way, uh, a kingdom way, that there was hope for at least some of them, if, if maybe not even the entire uh, nation of Israel, to maybe uh, avoid that fate and uh, experience something else. Or at least those who did embrace this idea could, could escape that, uh, that judgment, that destruction that was coming, which we know came in AD 70. But I think beyond the eighty seventy thing that the the literal destruction of a physical city and a group of people who who ended up getting wiped out um i think beyond that post eighty seventy to me the the message is just simply like i said to live the kind of a life that jesus lived mm-hmm. um and, you know and and to basically embody the kingdom embody the the love of totally, Christ. Totally,
2: totally. And I think for me, when I understand, it's like Jesus, there's a, there's a, a verse in the Bible in, in the New Testament when uh, Jesus is, is quoted as saying, um, when a disciple is fully trained, he'll be like his master. So when, Jesus didn't make it a habit. I know that this is kind of how it's presented often, but Jesus didn't have a list of commands that he said, okay, these are the commands I'm commanding you go do these things, blah, 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 blah. That's really not, I feel like it's an incorrect way to understand the mission of Jesus or the life of Jesus. Um, Even though he, that language is used, uh, you know, go and (laughs) teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. So yeah, but he didn't like really live by laws. He didn't like dish out laws to people. So the question is, what is it that he through his own life modeled? So the first thing I think if we're going to look at Jesus as the model, and we want to help other people model this life. The first thing you got to stop doing is talking about Jesus because Jesus did not, if you were to model Jesus, Jesus did not make it a habit to go around talking about himself. So he modeled a certain way. So he wasn't Jesus. I'm convinced Jesus was not making converts of himself or really even to that fact, making disciples of himself after his own like personality cult wise. Like in a sense, I don't think he cared that people were like, I'm a disciple of Jesus. So a lot of times like we, our message becomes it's all about Jesus, but Jesus message wasn't all about Jesus. So in order to emulate Jesus, you really need to stop talking about Jesus. So, and I know that sounds crazy, but at the end of the day, like, so like, what did he talk about? Well, since if he, he wasn't talking about himself, what was he talking about? Well, I think there's a lot of things. The first thing, you know, so when I think of what a disciple is, it's like teaching somebody how to, and this was the very first part of Jesus' message was, hey guys, everyone is living for money for survival. Everyone is like working for survival, all this kind of thing. But you can't do that. Like in this new world that's coming, I'm, I'm called there's a higher calling for you. So instead of living for money to like survive and just, you know, for food and, clothing and shelter and all that kind of thing, which is pretty much what occupies the world's uh, focus. He's like, it's not going to be that way for you. For you, you're going to seek first this internal place, which is the kingdom of God, which is within us. And everything you need is going to flow out of that. So he was teaching people not to like work for money in the sense of like, don't make your life focused on how you're going to live. Like there's just something beyond that. So to me, like that's the essence, a huge part of like, helping people emulate this life because if you look at the life of jesus jesus was motivated and his life's work was centered around um bringing this this realm of heaven to earth through um you know through, through first of all like loving and serving people that was a huge part of it i think the other thing is like i mean you can really see how he lived and he was not motivated by crisis like so he's on a boat and there's a storm coming and people are freaking out and he wasn't. He was literally at another plane in which he was he was at rest and he was at peace. So there was a quality of his life that's like, oh, he's not. He doesn't seem to be going from crisis to crisis, trying to put out fires. He seems to be motivated and living by a whole nother sense of certainty or calmness, or you know. And, and it's just, so that's a that's a huge way. It's another way to live. So I look at those kind of things and go, wow. So teaching, and then of course he loved. He like didn't see an us versus them. He would talk about people. He would say, I'm the light of the world. Then he'd turn around and go, but so are you. And he would treat people as if they were just like himself. And he would help people. I really like everything that he would say about himself. He would turn around and give that same identity to other people. So for me, like a disciple of Jesus is somebody who first quote unquote is, is living for, from love or living from the internal place. Someone who knows their own their own divinity as someone who knows that they're they're literally offspring of di- of the divine and um somebody who's like not motivated by crisis somebody who's just secure in life these are like obviously ways of life that are learned and developed but I, to me that's what a disciple is it's not somebody who I mean you don't even have to really call yourself a disciple of Jesus to learn these things i think we can see them in every culture around the world you know this is my understanding
3: When i think yeah, one I, I thing I like that you said that too because it's like, for me, if I would much rather see someone acting like Jesus as best they can than talking about Jesus, and I, and I think yeah, I think Jesus would have been a little bit um kind of appalled at how much we talk about him without actually just doing what he did, and I think when we get caught up in that language of Jesus and and. and I think we miss the point so I would much I would much rather uh see someone who is just helping the poor or you know helping the widow or visiting the imprisoned without doing it in the name of Jesus uh, just doing it rather than someone who takes on the, the name of Jesus and then sort of misses that thing or if they do those sort of things there's always an agenda. There's always something that's uh, rather than just living out of this place of other other centered love that he himself lived out of. And I think that's the whole point of something like Matthew 25, where it's like, you know, we always want to talk about how people go to hell when they die. And it's like, well, if anyone goes to hell, it's the Christians who take the name of Jesus and then don't act like him. And that just just rubs me the wrong way. So anytime I see all these missions trips that is so like, Jesus, 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 it's like, just go be Jesus rather than blabbing on about him all the
1: time. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm a big, I'm really huge on, uh, again, this idea of orthopraxy versus orthodoxy. And I totally agree. We should not be talking about Jesus or even, I mean, in some ways that's an improvement because usually what Christians are talking about is things that Paul says, but but again if at the end of the day all you're doing is talking about anything what's the point it's useless. Um so absolutely we need to be we need to be sure. actually putting right. into practice what Jesus said and say I I would challenge uh what what Jamal is saying about Jesus doesn't talk about himself. I actually think he talks about himself all the time. He does talk about the kingdom more than anything. And that is what I think his, his his message is really all about. But tied to the message of the kingdom is the fact that there's entering the kingdom is submission to him. So you're like this. That's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I command you? Uh, that's why he gives the parable about the, you know, the wise man who built his house upon the rock, which means that in the, in the example, he's the one who heard the words of Jesus and put them into practice. Uh, and that's, he's the wise one. And then the one, the foolish one is the one who heard the words of Jesus and did not put them into practice. So Jesus is big on taking his words and putting them into practice. I think he does point to himself a lot as an example of that. You know, he talks to the Pharisees and says, You you search the scriptures because you think in them you have life, but you refuse to come to me and have yeah, life. I don't think he's talking about himself. Uh, right and I though.
2: could go, I, I would I would totally disagree that he's talking about himself.
1: So what's he talking about when he says you refuse to come I think to he's me? He's
2: talking about the essence of of what he's living by the ethic. Because I'll give you an example. I would I would not say that the entrance to the kingdom of God comes through Jesus, the person. Because then what do you do with a guy like Mahatma Gandhi, who absolutely, in my opinion, lived out the ethic of the kingdom of God and wasn't like being obedient to the the, the words of Jesus, but he could read the gospels. But actually then he it, was.
1: No, he, no, was. he was. Gandhi he, read... Gandhi read the Sermon on the Mount every day of his life, like the last. And two he years agreed of his with life. it,
2: but he had been living that his whole life before Jesus ever came on the scene. So he, he most of his adult life, he'd been living that. He read the words of Jesus and, and recognized them as being his own ethic. But I think his entrance into the kingdom came came through that. And I so when Jesus calls, it's just like when he says in John fourteen six, "I am the way, the truth, and the life." I don't think he's appealing to himself as a like a cult leader. I think he's saying the essence of who I am. This is the way. You know, into the, into the, to the source It's the way I'm living, I'm modeling, I'm demonstrating this. This is no different than when other teachers have said that, but I don't know that Jesus is saying like, like, that's why, that's how we get into this mess of making converts. Um, of the man Jesus and creating the tribe of Christianity, because we feel like he is like the gate in the sense of it's the person of Jesus. That's the gate into this kingdom, but it's, it's the Christ essence that he's pointing to. I think that we can all point to within ourselves. I think we all possess the same thing. So Muhammad Gandhi in his day could say, Hey guys, you know, uh, you refuse to come to me. He could look at the, 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 some of the, maybe the, the leaders in his culture or Martin Luther King Jr. could look at the leaders in his culture in his day and say, guys, you know, you, you, ref- you think you're, you're reading your Bibles. And he actually did say stuff like that. You're reading your Bibles. You're trying to obey God, but you refuse to listen to the, my heart and come to me. So he's, he's up uh, to me and not appealing to personality, Or, or um, some like cult leader kind of thing. Like I'm looking for disciples, but he's pointing to the ethic that transcends his his temporal human existence. It's
1: yeah. But I I I, I was real quick. I want to challenge just one quick thing. Um, Like what you just described, and you called that converts. But see, that's not convert. A convert is not someone who follows Jesus. Someone who follows Jesus is a disciple, and there is a difference in my mind between a disciple who is someone who puts into practice the life and teachings and ethics of Jesus, which I think is what is what it's about. That's what it's like to me to live a kingdom life. A convert is the opposite. It's what we're saying is someone who says, Jesus, 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 but doesn't do any of it, has no intention of putting into pra- practice anything. That Jesus said about loving your neighbor or loving your enemy or caring for the poor or doing any of those things—they just they're they're a convert. They said their prayer, they have their fire insurance, and they're waiting to die so they can go to heaven. That, and there's radical difference between a disciple and a convert.
3: All right. I think I agree with both of you guys because I think on the one hand Jesus is pointing to his Christ nature and all that good stuff that Jamal said, but on the other, I think Jesus is pointing um to his in him, himself as a person i think understanding the human propensity to follow yeah, the others.
1: mimesis there's a mimetic and, thing going on right we need yeah, someone to yeah, yeah. to and, follow and jesus is saying this we have my, done one,
3: every my, my one my one beef, my one beef with buddhism though and things like that is that there's this you know concept of 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 renouncing your desires and i just think that's an impossible notion because that itself seems like a desire So that's where I think Jesus Mm -hmm. still is a little bit unique for me in that in that um, he understands that there's a creative or positive imitative response that we can have. And we need that model that Jesus, the the actual person lived as, as a true human. And so going back to our topic on missions and evangelizing, like I don't see the point in going and doing what we're doing, because how can we go make disciples if if we're not going to I mean we can't make a disciple in like a week and then leave. Like this was like a three to five year process in the, in the, uh, in the first, you know, 300 years. So this whole notion that we're going to go take some selfies of ourselves um, in front of a hospital that we've built. And we think we're, I mean, we're doing something like you said, that our intentions are good, but it might not play out like that as you pointed out, Keith, but we're not actually making disciples. So we've completely missed. Missed the point, point. and so that's, I guess, the long-winded <laughs> way of saying. I think I agree with both of you guys when you were sort of going, going back and forth in that it is the Christ nature, but I don't want to be dualistic and say that's no, different yeah, yeah. than the person of Jesus. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's. it's not and, and I'm trying to say it's
2: separate, but the idea is that when Jesus says, "Go and make disciples." Um, I don't think it really has anything to do with him in the sense of like we want to go and teach about this man Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago and you got to believe these things about Jesus in order to be a disciple I think I think w- the idea is okay Jesus sure. inform may inform us but Jesus is first of all he's he's just one guy over many, like the script the Bible says that jesus is is preeminent among many many others. so there's many, many others like him and I don't think Jesus is the only one uh he may be a standard that has lifted up and we can we can point to the uniqueness of that jesus is the standard but honestly i honestly believe that the goal is that there be many 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 people who understand their christ nature themselves that they are the son of the living God, the daughter of the living God. And as they move into this identity, they themselves become their own reference point, not Jesus. And I I (laughs) just, I know that's right, but I honestly (laughs) believe that's what Jesus wanted from us. He actually did not want to replace ourselves as our own reference point. And I think that's why he said it's better that I leave. And it's because we have a tendency to make it all about Jesus. When the, to really understand the heart of Jesus, we have to understand who we are. I I just really think that's a huge difference here.
1: Yeah.
3: Uh, <laughs> are you going to go on a mission
1: <laughs> maybe. to teach that?
2: <laughs> maybe.
1: Yeah, I I love Jamal, but I, I really disagree uh, on that idea. But we've been we've been going round and round on this whole thing for a long time. Yes. So, and and I don't Indeed, think we're going to solve have, it right now. So. Yes.
3: And that's okay. Nor are we going to solve the question of mission. Don't do it.
1: That's my <laughs> that's my thing. Stop. Don't do it. Don't, <laughs> no don't tie yeah. don't go to missions trips. Va- Volunteer at the local homeless go, shelter. Okay?
2: But if you do go to missions if you do on a missions trip, help people understand that they're just like
1: Jesus. <laughs>